This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the historian Philip Blom about his new book, Nature's Mutiny, How the Little Ice Age of the Long 17th Century Transformed the West and Shaped the Present. Your book, Philip, is as illuminating as it is timely. Mankind once again confronts a period of transformative climate change, and your book teaches us to expect new ways of thinking about the world. Before we come to the possible social, political, and cultural change, perhaps you can begin with a long 17th century winter of discontent. What years are we talking about? How severe the drop in temperature in what parts of the world? A lot of questions, Lewis, and thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, let me start with the years, because that's the first interesting and quite difficult thing. It depends very much on who you ask. There are scientists who say that Little Ice Age already started at the end of the Middle Ages. Others put it much shorter. But I have concentrated on the late 16th century to the late 17th century. Why? Because there the conditions became most dramatic. And when I say dramatic, um, we don't really know why this little ice age happened. Scientists are still investigating that and there are different hypotheses. But we do know that it happened. And we've got a very, very detailed uh, data sets about um, the drops in temperature and what that entailed for the natural world. Things like ice core drill, uh, drilled ice cores that have been analyzed, or plant sediments, or even human documents such as diaries and so So we do know a lot about that it happened. And the temperature drop of two degrees, like today with the global warming, it doesn't mean that just everything becomes a little bit colder. It means that entire climate systems get changed. And so you get more extreme weather, you get weather that you wouldn't usually have in that part of the world. I have concentrated in this book on Europe, not because I don't think the rest of the world is interesting, very much on the contrary, but actually a little bit more for an opposite reason, because I don't speak Chinese, I don't read Sanskrit, I am not an expert in Southern American cultures, and I couldn't say anything meaningful about those things. That is for other people to do. I've concentrated on Europe, and there also you have got especially rich data about the effects of this, um, of this climate change. And what you, for instance, saw was that not only the Thames froze over and there were fairs held on the Thames with little houses built on the river. Also the Danube did so that in the 30 years war, entire armies could ride across the Danube. Indeed, harbors in the Mediterranean, such in Marseille or even in Venice, they froze over for not only the winter, but up to May. And now you can imagine and that then becomes, that comes much more closer to home for the people. What that means, for instance, to agriculture. Europe was an agricultural continent. Most of the economy was involved with agriculture. And all of a sudden, winters became longer and harder. Summers became very often shorter, wetter. The grain didn't even have time to ripen. And people were hungry. 
People in the countryside were hungry because they had literally nothing to eat. People in the cities were hungry because grain was sort of the gold standard of the time. So when the grain prices went up, that was inflation and uh, people could no longer, they, were, they had 100% inflation per year sometimes. And of course, the aristocracy also had a problem because most aristocrats were involved in one war or another at most times, and wars, as we know very well, cost a lot of money, and they no longer had the tax revenue to support that. So throughout the entire structure of society, this climate change created a kind of pressure. And I looked in this book really at the question, now what happens to a society when the climate changes? What does this pressure do with that society? We are talking about the years roughly 1560 to 1684. Yes, that's how right. kind of Okay. And primarily in Europe. Primarily in Europe. And it's, it's not only the changes in the climate, but it's also the changes in the way of thinking and, and how uh, human beings meet the change circumstance and you were talking about that and it's not only wars but also the rise of reading education the change you know the drift toward empirical observation all that becomes hugely important go on and elaborate on that because you do it so well in the book well let me try to do um to do it justice like this as well um Look, I mean, as I say, the thing starts with the crisis of agriculture, and that is very clearly and directly linked to the climate. Um, but, of course, that immediately has consequences on culture, on, you know, we are an animal who has to live in that climate. So, for instance, after every bad harvest, you had um, witch trials, and witches were always accused, so-called witches, of having um, spoiled the, the harvest and made the animals sick things that always happened in these bad years. But the changes go on, they become less direct, but it may, I think it makes quite a compelling picture. For instance, most of Europe at this time in the late 16th century lived of subsistence agriculture. So basically people, people uh, grew what they needed to live and what they needed to pay their lord, but they didn't think of growing economically. They didn't think of becoming a bigger business. They didn't think of creating, a, of growing a lot for a market to sell. You call it life without money. Well, it was for most people in the countryside, they, you know, most of their lives could be lived pretty much without money. Once a year, there would be a fair in the next town and they would go there, get terribly drunk and probably find someone to marry or, you know, also buy a few necessities, and for that they needed money. But most life in the countryside was either barter or simply self-sufficiency. And now that this system became so disturbed because these weather events happen locally, they affect one area far more than another for one year. And so things became very difficult to maintain. And one of the mechanisms that were found to be able to to tackle that most effectively was trade. Trade was developed in Europe more strongly than it had been before. So that, for instance, Amsterdam became a sort of um, exchange place for grain that they bought in the Baltic states in Eastern Europe, where there were large fields, and brought and exported pretty much to the entire rest of Europe. 
Now, with trade becoming important, you need a different kind of people. You need people who can read and who can count, who are literate and numerate. And um, the Dutch understood that, and so they founded a whole lot of schools because they found that this trade was actually making them not only wealthy but also pretty powerful. They founded the first university, or actually the second university in Europe, where you could study something else than just theology and ancient history and ancient languages and perhaps law, but you could study scientific subjects. And for that, you no longer needed to swear to a particular faith, but people of all faiths could go there and study. So that was a huge step. And little by little, we see a new world emerging. It's incidentally very interesting when you make a comparison. It's a slightly rhetorical comparison, but it's not altogether wrong. Here are the Netherlands, which were really a little country that had done nothing in the world in the middle 16, mid-16th century. And all of a sudden, this extraordinary flourishing, all built on trade, um, which made the Netherlands the biggest naval power of its time, but also a huge and flourishing market, and a huge and flourishing market also of ideas. Amsterdam was a city that welcomed dissidents in other countries, from other countries, that printed books that were forbidden in other countries, and it flourished through that. Um, on the other hand, you have Spain, which was then um, the most powerful country in the world. Um, it was famously the empire in which the sun never set because the Habsburgs had, had parts of the world around the globe. Um, and Habsburg Spain decided, no, we don't need to change. We know that we're the most Catholic country. God loves us. Nothing bad will happen to us. And one famine came after the other. They had continued to have a huge influx of silver from their colonies, usually mostly in Peru. But because Spain was so turned inward, that huge influx of silver created a devastating inflation. Spanish goods could not be exported. They were too expensive. It was difficult to import. Spain had four national bankruptcies in a century. Um, Spain expelled people they didn't think were good enough Catholics, such as, for instance, the Moriscos, who were the descendants of Moorish traders, who were, of course, in charge of the whole Mediterranean trading ne network of Spain. And Spain dramatically ended its great flourishing, its great power status, and really only came back into the modern world in 19. Uh, 1975, when Francisco Franco, the dictator, died. Now, what do I want to say? Well, I think if you compare Amsterdam and Spain, then you see that in the face of such a vast and systemic change that is simply there in nature, you can embrace it and go with it, or you can try to resist it or ignore it, and then it will break you. And among among the people you talk about, you you mention a lot of uh, fine thinkers that that appear in this period. I mean, it's not only Montaigne, but it's also Descartes. It's also Pierre Gassendi, Pierre Bayle, Benedict Spinoza. A lot of people, most people haven't heard of, yes, but who are who were fascinating. And what are they doing? Talk about a few of them. Well, what are they doing in a book on climate change? That seems a little bit odd. I think what they're doing there is what we are seeing is in Europe, this crisis of climate change begins to get tackled, the crisis of agriculture, not only through trade, but also through botany, 
through empirical research in what makes plants grow better. And both of these things, trade and academic research, have one thing in common. They need a literate population. They need education. And we see the rise of an educated class in Europe at this time. They get bigger. They become more important. They become more powerful. They have more schools. They, you know, you see that, for instance, a lot more books get sold at this time than, than previously. And what does that mean? Well, that means at one point, this class, which now becomes very successful and really has ridden, risen out of nowhere, they have a lot of economic power because they are the traders, of course. They also have a lot of cultural power because they are the professors and the artists, etc. But they have hardly any political power. And they want political power. They want to be able to have a hand in what their communities are doing and how they live. And they have to find an argument for power. And they can't use the argument of the church, which is essentially God loves me more than you. And they can't fall back on the argument of the aristocracy, which means my family is older than you. But they can take a very old philosophical argument, as it were, really out of, the, um, out of antiquity and say, but surely we are all equal. And if we're all equal, we all have the same right to give shape to our life, to pursue happiness. And they do that, and that has great success. And you see that the, exp the exponents of this class who say that, they are um, great Enlightenment philosophers like Descartes and Spinoza. Spinoza, who was an import-export trader, and Descartes, who was um, a lawyer. And if you knew Hobbes was, was a school teacher and later um, Diderot, for instance, was the son of a cutler. Now, this is really the beginning of the Enlightenment. That is that, di is that directly owed to climate change? No, of course not directly. But you see that the pressure that was put on the world through this crisis of agriculture really moved societies in this direction of embracing the Enlightenment, embracing ideas of like human rights and human equality, which were completely crazy at the time to many people, but which have become completely matter of course, I hope, in ours. Well, yes, and you, you do this very well because you talk about the this conjuries of scholars and thought as your phrase, a republic of letters in the 17th century, which leads directly into the 18th century Enlightenment. And, and that Diderot, uh, you know, borrows from Spinoza and from Gassendi and from that wonderful Italian, uh, Viviani or Vanini. Vanini, yes. I'd never heard of Vanini before. They're very, very scandalous. But you see, they, they were all scandalous. First, of course, you could still be burnt for heresy. And some of them, Vanini indeed was. Um, but they were simply courageous thinkers. They were people who stood a little bit outside of society, who had to be a little bit afraid. I mean, it's not by accident that Descartes moved to the Netherlands, that Pierre Bayle, who was one another such figure, very obscure in his own day, but hugely important. Pierre Bayle actually came from southern France, but he was Protestant in a time when it was very difficult for Protestants to live in France. So he sought refuge in the Netherlands. He lived in Rotterdam, close to Amsterdam. And um, he compiled a huge dictionary. Now, that doesn't sound so amazing, but when you look at this dictionary, um, he talks about ancient philosophers and about modern scientists and about ideas. But 
he does it in a way that was really revolutionary because when you open this page, it doesn't give you just a dry definition as you're used to in a dictionary, but it gives you um, the quotations and the literature from where he has the information from. And not only that, it shows you that people have been of very different opinion about this or that subject, about this or that philosopher. And he plays them off against each other. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you are, as a reader, involved in this huge discussion spanning centuries in which there is no received wisdom, but only one question after the other. Now, People like that were hugely important because these books were widely disseminated. They stood in every library that was important. And they were read and reread and reread, indeed, right into the 19th century. So these emigres, these rather marginal figures, they, um, they were really the heroes of the age. Talk about the way you know, in Amsterdam... The materialist um, thinking about the world combined with Calvin's uh, predestination, and it, it gives us a certain kind of attitude toward money. Well, yes. I mean, it's surprising to see how much we have inherited from the world. And before I come to Calvin, I, one other little um, thing that sounded dreadfully familiar to me um, we have the first real economic theorists at that time. They were called the mercantilists back then. And they went to their king and said, well, look, if you really want to make money to lead wars, here's what you need to do. What you need is economic growth based on exploitation. You need to grow your market more faster than the next guy. And for that, you need to exploit natural resources, your own poor and colonial peoples. And, you know, economic growth based on exploitation, that's an idea that is still resonating in our time very clearly. Um, but perhaps the implications of it have changed a little bit. But let me let me go to your other point, which I which is which is also but I'm terribly sorry. Can you can you remind me what you you wanted to know about? No, I, I, when you're talking about the the bourgeois magnificos in Amsterdam and their ideas that that the their money their their money is by God's grace right well one other one other strange similarity with today is um, there was a Protestant sect called the Calvinists and their um, their leader and founder Jean Calvin had developed um, a new theology based on a very simple question, because theologians were very troubled by the idea that, you know, God wants us to be good, and then we get into paradise. But doesn't that mean that if we're good, he has to take us into paradise? That means that he no longer has free will. He is obliged to do something because we act in this way or that. And that they couldn't square that with God's omnipotence. So Calvin said, well, that's because you've got it the wrong way around. In fact, God freely preordains who will be saved. But we don't get to know whether we are one of the saved or not. We just are thrown into life and have to make the best of it. But God gives you a little hint because um, those whom he has preordained to be saved, he also gives them wealth. And so the people who are poor they probably won't get into heaven. And the people who are rich, they, 
probably might. And now, of course, that meant that all of a sudden wealth and virtue were associated and poverty and vice were. So if you were poor, by implication, it wasn't really worth saving you because you were damned. Um, and if you were rich, the very fact that you had money meant that you were one of the saved, that you were one of the virtuous. And again, you know, if you look at how today we treat very rich people and how we treat them instinctively with more respect and how we think that they have more to say about the world than other people, I think you see pretty clear echoes of that kind of theology in our world, which we think is so secular, but in fact is still really drenched in theological ideas once you look for them. Well, I mean, yes, we've developed, as you say later, the theology of the market and confused the market with divine providence. But before we get to that point, talk about a further variation on what is now our consumer society, which... Bernard Mandeville describes in The Fable of the Bees. Ex explain the, the idea that virtue cannot make... Yes, a fantastic yeah, I love this idea. Ex explain it at some length. So Bernard Mandeville was a, was a doctor. He was a Dutchman, one of those pragmatic Dutchmen, but he lived in London and... Um, you know, with his moral pragmatism, for instance, he also defended the existence of brothels and said, you know, we shouldn't call them houses of sin and we should keep them clean and we should um, control them. But uh, we should accept that these things exist in society. And you can imagine that a guy like that didn't only make himself friends. You know, these things were very provocative. And then he came out with this fable of the bees, a fantastic read in doggerel rhyme, where he describes a huge beehive and every bee in a very thinly veiled um, satire on his own society. You know, every kind of bee is basically vicious, rapacious, lazy, lying, um, they they are compendiums of all vices that you could find. And he describes the lawyers, you know, who are useless and just pull the money out of the pockets of their client bees and the doctor bees who really haven't ever healed anyone but have become very rich by that. And the aristocratic bees who are just sort of rolling around in their own fat and are living off everybody else. And the beggar bees who just try to steal from them because they can. And so, you know, it goes And also, around. let me add to the list, to his list, also pirates, pimps, pickpockets, parasites, quacks, Yes. And of course, you know, traders, dealers who were, who were always an, or dishonest. The hive thrives on dishonesty, flattery, deceit, and vanity. And if you try to make a good, profitable society out of virtue, you are lost. Well, you know, his is the <laughs> ultimate argument of greed is good. He says, you know, because they're all vain, they're all by luxury stuff, and that keeps the market going, trickle-down economics, we call it then. Um, but, you know, basically because they're all so, um, so vicious, the market is actually thriving. And then all of a sudden one bee gets, catches morals and begins to preach to the other bees that they have to leave aside their wicked ways and become you know, religious and moral and ethical and frugal and modest. And 
you know what? He succeeds, and the other bees believe him, and the aristocratic bees send away their servants and their golden coaches and no longer live in luxury. And, of course, the market collapses, and the whole hive sort of collapses into a civil war, and where you had civilization before, you now only have misery. So Mandeville put it forward a very robust, although slightly tongue-in-cheek argument that really if there was anything to the economy, it was only through greed. Well, I mean, that's not far off from our own consumer society that we've got going in the United States that has been, the, you know, the gigantic prosperity of the 20th century. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a product of the advertising business to... to uh, uh, Paradise is here for sale, and that's what yes. We, uh, and and we, we are still, in in my opinion, I mean, uh, we're still stuck in 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 this notion of of um, uh, pleasure, power, and happiness is uh, greed is 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 the state from which all blessings flow. Well, we are still stuck in a few of those notions, equating virtue and wealth, yeah. um, thinking that greed is great, or also the simple idea of economic growth based on exploitation. Only the fact is, um, in contrast to the 17th century, the technological reach of our civilization is so much greater. It only, doesn't only go around the globe, but you know, it has the power to really impact nature. And therefore, we have come to the limits of the possibility of that growth. We cannot pump out more and more fossil fuels because not only is that causing the climate change we're caught in at the moment, but also it's driving the sixth extinction of species, collapses of insect numbers, etc. And we're beginning to see this model was good for a while. It made the worst rich beyond its wildest dreams. It powered science. It made democracies possible because they are also expensive. But we've really come to the moment where we have to think about a radical reorientation for our societies because nature will no longer stand our expanding at the rate that we're doing it at the moment. And you say, you have this wonderful sentence, Human nature may not change, but human behavior can and does. So that is what we're talking about. Well, it's our sort of evolutionary turbo drive. You know, other animals have their DNA, and the DNA can change, but that takes a long time, many generations. We have culture. We, um, we are animals that tell each other stories, and we can vary what stories we tell. And as those stories tell us from childhood on what is virtue and what is vice and what is good and what is bad in a society, we can change that. At the moment, we are in a narrative that tells you if you want to be cool, if you want to be worth something, you need to have a lot of money and you need to consume a certain kind of object or service, because that signifies your social status to the others and you know basically you can buy your own identity you buy stuff from particular designers who think they reflect particularly well who you want to be perceived as but identity goes goes via consumption that's a very new model 
of doing things. And as we see, it's also quite a weak one. It is quite a quite one that is controlled, obviously, by other people, not by yourself. But perhaps there are actually more interesting ways of constructing our identity out there. And I think the kind of impasse we have come to as Western societies, especially in our use of energy and in our industrial development, they mean that perhaps we should look to our ability to generate culture to see whether we can't change this narrative, whether we can't see whether we whether living in a society where money is a little bit less important, where the market is used to drive the changes we really need to have a future, whether that wouldn't be a more intelligent option of dealing with that. And for that, we can use that hyperdrive that we have, that turbodrive culture. So that is where we're looking for an answer. We're not looking to a technology. We're looking to a, a cultural an idea change. Well, look, technology, of course, must play a role in that. You know, we must find more ways of creating sustainable energy. We must find different ways of getting away from plastics, etc. And all of that, technology will play a key role. But we can't wait until technology gives us the magic bullet. We need to act now. And therefore, you know, it is up to us to change our behavior and to change the way we talk about things and to change the way to change the way that we allocate respect to people. And that those things are very, very powerful. And so, yes, of course, we need technology. But, you know, the people sort of technology optimists who think, you know, yes, there are a few problems at the moment with the climate, but technology will sort them out. I think that's quite a dangerous way of, of thinking because simply we can't wait until the technological magic bullet comes and we can't hope to use technology to be able to go on exactly as we are doing now only in a little bit more a cleaner way that won't work i tell you it's it's just a delight to talk to you philip i mean and uh, thank you thank you very much for speaking with us today with philip blom and about his very good new book nature's Mutiny, with it comes with the subtitle, How the Little Ice Age of the Long 17th Century Transformed the West and Shaped the Present. It's been a pleasure, Louis, as always. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.